and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. But uh, moving on from all that, what we're going to look at this morning is this last church, Revelation chapter 3. And then if you want to, if you're using a Bible, put a finger in Matthew chapter 19 as well, or a little bookmark or something. We're going we're gonna to look at Revelation chapter 3, and then I'm going to share some verses in Matthew 19 as well. And so, as we, as we look at this, this, is the church in Laodicea, okay? So, uh, Jesus addresses these seven churches through the Apostle John. He shows up to him in a vision, and he gives them specific directions to share with these seven churches. He calls out specific things that they're dealing with. He then gives them a very specific ways that they can live life to the fullest after that, and he makes promises to them, okay? So, that's what's going on in these seven churches. There's probably about a hundred churches um, that Jesus could have addressed at this point in time. He picked these seven. Um, and we see seven in the scriptures. It's not done by accident. It's an idea of completeness. Um, and so he addresses these seven churches. And in it, we get a, um, a picture of what churches could struggle with, things that churches could do well, promises that churches need to hear. Uh, these are really important things. Truths about who Jesus is that are really important for us to hear. And so we, you, you may look at this and you go, man, I really identify with this in our church. Or I really see this as something that's going on in the Western church. Or maybe you go, you know, I'm not really so much at looking at other stuff, but what do I need to do within my life? How should I respond to this? And that's the most important thing for us to do. And so as we look at this church in Laodicea, uh, we're going to see that this is a church that uh, they, they're financially doing very well, okay? Uh, an earthquake hit this area in about 17 AD, and we saw that Philadelphia, the church we looked at last week, the city of Philadelphia, it really struggled in rebuilding. Most of the inhabitants had left. It was a small town because they couldn't rebuild build. This church in Laodicea, they're able to rebuild. They're able to purchase the materials that they need to do that. They're able to bring in the skilled work and uh, labor that allows them to rebuild their city. And so they're a city that they, they view themselves as like, we've got this together. Okay. And so that's one of the things that we're going to see kind of come on uh, as, as a problem actually for them. And so let me pray with you and then we'll read these verses and look at this church together. Father, this morning we come to you um, above all else, God, I pray that we want close and meaningful fellowship with you. Um, that that you, you are the maker and creator of the universe, and that includes me. Uh, you are righteous, you are holy, you are far beyond my thoughts. Um, you're bigger than I can comprehend. And at the same time, um, you call me your friend. Uh, and, and you want meaningful relationship with me. Um, and there's a part of me that, that has to respond to that. Uh, you, you don't knock down the door of our heart, but instead you knock at it and you look at us for, uh, uh, for us to open. And so I pray that we would this morning, that we would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us, uh, that uh, we would allow you in and that you would transform us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. 
Jesus says to John the Apostle, he says, Write to the angel in the church of Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. And so Jesus introduces himself, and he, he does this in different ways to each of the churches. To this church, he says that he is the Amen. Jesus would say this when he would, uh, we say it at the end of a prayer. Jesus would often say it at the beginning of something. He would say, truly, truly, or Amen, Amen, I tell you. Right? And so what he's saying in this is I'm giving you what is true. I'm giving you what is right. He's saying that he is the amen. He is what is true. He is what is right. Okay? So he's that. Then he says that he's faithful, the faithful and true witness. That word faithful means trustworthy. He's trustworthy and true. He's the trustworthy and true witness of who God is. Jesus made statements like he said, I and the Father are one. Uh, he, he made claims of deity. And when he did that, the Jewish people, they looked at him and they said, well, that's blasphemy. You're a human. You're not God. But as we get to know who Jesus is more and more, we realize that he is both fully God and fully man. And he joined us in our humanity to take away our sin. But he is faithful and true. You ever read a news article or you're spending time on the internet and you wonder, is this true? Is this trustworthy? Can this be right? Jesus says, when you read him, that's what you're reading. Uh, when you go to him and his word, you're getting what is trustworthy and true. And then he says that he's the originator of God's creation. And that word originator, it has the idea of the, the one who started it, but it's also the one who has dominion over it. So like he created everything and he is the rightful ruler of it. He didn't create it and step back from it and hoped it turned out all right. Instead, he created us with intention and purpose. He gave us the ability to choose. And in our ability to choose, we've made some, we've made some bad choices, like rejecting his authority, rejecting his dominion over us. But that doesn't mean it's not his. It is his. And so this is who he is. He is the one who's going to judge. He is the one who has the ability to save and forgive. And so he's the truth. He is the trustworthy and true witness of who God is. And he is our creator and the one to whom we should bow the knee, who has dominion. And so what he does with this church, he reminds this pseudo-satisfied church of wealth and possessions that he is the designer of life. That the deepest longings of life are only met in fellowship with him. It doesn't matter what you own or what you buy or what you acquire or anything along those lines. It won't fulfill you. He's saying that he is the one who wants to offer this fulfillness. He's the only one who can. And so he tells them in verse 15, he says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And so what he does is he tells this church that uh, they would have understood this reference as well. The, the, the water that this city received came through an aqueduct. And by the time it got to them on the aqueduct, it was lukewarm. And so they would get their water and they'd have to go through a process of purifying it before they could just drink it. And so what he tells them, he says, you are hanging out with you, this church that thinks that life is found in possessions and wealth. Hanging out with you is like drinking Stagnant, calcified, tepid water. You're kind of gross. Um, now, if you've ever been out in eastern Nevada, you spend some time out there. We've, my brother-in-law and I, we used to go out to Mason Valley and we'd duck hunt and we'd do different things and have a good time out there. But there were multiple occasions where, you know, you're thirsty and you want to get back to the truck because you forgot your water there. It's, that's where it is. And so you're walking around and maybe you see this puddle of water and you're like, yeah, that's water, but I'm not drinking it, right? Um, and so he's saying that that's what they're kind of like. Uh, 
Uh, they're this water that you would look at it and you go, yeah, I'm, I, I don't want a sip of that. Um, hanging out with you is not what I'm looking for. Um, you've, you've, you've fallen for the tricks. You've given in to the idea that in wealth and possessions you can find life. And then he calls him out for this in verse 17. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You are, you're wretched. That word, it means, it has the idea of uh, someone that's miserable. Uh, they, they have everything and they're miserable. They, they don't lack wealth. They don't lack money. They don't lack the ability to get their city fixed. They, they have all of these things, but they're still miserable. Uh, that word pitiful, it's a, you look at someone and you go, what a terrible situation they're in. Man, that's really bad. He calls them poor. Uh, and that word has the idea of being reduced to having to beg. Um, they're poor. He calls them blind. Uh, now, this is a city that we're going to see here in a second. He tells them to buy ointment from them. This was a city that eye troubles during that point in time. This, this group of people, they'd actually come up with an ointment that people would rub on their eyes and it would help them with any eye trouble that they had. And so they're like, we're not, we're not blind. We're not poor or wretched or someone to be pitied. We, we have everything. We've got all the material possessions we could want. Our, our city is beautiful. He says that they're naked and they're going, no, we're not. We wear really nice clothes. What are you talking about? And so here's this group of people where they have everything. They don't lack anything as far as material possessions and wealth is concerned. But because they put their hope in those things, Jesus calls them wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And we see that this is what this, this church does to make them seem vile and to turn the stomach of Jesus. They, they proclaimed and lived a false gospel that centered their lives on temporary happiness based on earthly possessions. Uh, their lives and the gospel that they preached. It was false and centered on temporary happiness based on the acquisition of earthly possessions. And so Jesus calls this out for what it is, that, that it's a problem. That when we try and find life in created things rather than our creator, it doesn't actually give us what we're looking for. That's why we're miserable. He says you're miserable because you've actually fallen for the trick. You think that in owning things and acquiring possessions and getting ahead in life and having material wealth, that in those things you have life. He says you're actually miserable when you try and find your hope and life in those things. Now, Jesus drew this out in his ministry on earth. Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 16 through 30 if you want to go there with me. Jesus is doing some teaching at this point in time in his ministry. He's, he's deeper into it. Obviously, we're, it's chapter 19. It's not chapter 1. And so he's two, three years into his ministry. He's getting ready to set his face towards Jerusalem. And before he does that, there's some teaching that he wants to offer to the, the people. And so he says in verse, it says in verse 16, Then someone came up to him. And asked, Teacher, what good must, we, must I do to have eternal life? Jesus answers, and he says, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He asked him. And Jesus references the Ten Commandments, but not all of them. He just references the last six. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. 
I have kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, and that word means mature and complete, go sell your belongings and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Now, you probably heard this story before, this rich guy, that he wants to know what it is to be complete. He wants to know what it is to be right with God and what does he need to do to live a good life? You know, what must I do to be good and have eternal life? And Jesus answers him in an interesting way. The Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. He, he, he doesn't reference the first four. The first four are about loving God. The, the last six are about loving people. And I think it's interesting that he does that. He, he leaves out those commandments. And what this man, what we see is this man, he, he's willing to be moral and good to others, but he's not willing to put God first. The idea of being good and moral is fine by him. But the idea of putting God first, right? That he would have no gods before Jesus. That he would reject idolatry. That he would rightly represent God's name. And that he would organize his life around God. The first four commandments. He doesn't want to do those. And so Jesus cuts right through this guy. He says you're willing to be moral, but you're not willing to love God. You love the things of this world and worship them rather than God. See, the, the message that this guy wants to hear is the message of, a, of a, a wealth and prosperity type gospel. He wants to hear that if I'm good and I do well to others, then my life will be prosperous. Uh, if, I, if I do good to others, good will be done to me and, and I'll be able to prosper in life. Give me that kind of gospel. Give me the kind of gospel that's dependent upon my ability to be kind to others and be more moral than the guy next to me. He wants the do-gooders gospel. And Jesus says, those are all fine that you do that. I mean, we don't want to murder or commit adultery or steal or bear false witness or live a life that doesn't honor your father and mother. And you definitely want to love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're not willing to put God first, you're missing the mark. If you worship created things, if you have these idols that you put in front of God and you have other gods before him and then you practice idolatry and you don't represent his name well and you won't organize your life around him, then it misses the mark. And he goes on in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In your own effort and ability, it is impossible to be saved. The gospel is not be moral and God owes you. The gospel is you're broken, wretched, poor, and blind, and Jesus loves you anyway. And then because you make a choice to honor Jesus for who he is and you look to him to, for salvation and you trusted in the cross, he saved you from the consequences of your sin and that Jesus raised him from the dead, you then believe in him and you put him first. You say, there's nobody ahead of Jesus. Nobody and nothing. 
No, no person or possession or created thing gets in front of Jesus. He's first. And on top of that, I'm not going to allow anything that even looks like idolatry to slip into my life. And if God points it out, I'm going to repent and get rid of it. And then I want to represent his name well. I, I don't, I don't want to blaspheme. I, I don't want to make God out to be someone that he's not by saying that if you're good, he'll save you. That's not who he is. He, he saves us in spite of our brokenness. And so I want you to understand the truth of who God is. I want you to understand the, the, the high reaches of his holiness that we could never attain in our own abilities. But from the high reaches of his holiness, he came to us. And in the person of Jesus, he has saved us from the consequences of our sin and done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He is worthy for you to organize your life around him. If you'll do that... But you can't. Only through God is this going to take place. It is in dependence upon his grace that we live this life. Verse 27, Peter then responded to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. So what will, be there? What will there be for us? Peter looks around at a smaller group of people that Jesus is sharing this truth with. And he goes, we've left everything for you, Jesus. We dropped our fishing nets. It's pretty likely that Peter came from a family that had a good business, a good fishing business that paid the bills and they were doing all right. Um, and, and he says, we've left all that behind to follow you. We've dropped all of these things. What will there be for us? We've given up on believing that in worldly possessions we can find life. What is there for us? If it's not about what we can own, and it's not about our wealth, and it's not about our possessions, what is it about? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields, because of my name, will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus is letting us know that eternal wealth is not the same thing as earthly wealth. And what we as his followers must do is we, we have to learn to spot what has value in God's kingdom and put down things that get in the way of his kingdom. And so we have to ask, well, how do we do that? If God is calling me to seek eternal wealth and not just earthly wealth, if, if he wants me to use the earthly wealth that I have to bless others, how do I spot what has eternal value in God's kingdom and get rid of the things that, that, that keep me from pursuing his kingdom? Turn back with me to Revelation chapter 3. Jesus has a solution. And in verse 18, he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. You see, true wealth is knowing Jesus and being refined by him. Eternal wealth and things that have value into all of eternity, things that last, the genuine true wealth is knowing Jesus and being refined by him. You see, the stock market could crash tomorrow morning and you might lose all your money. But if you're in Christ, nobody can take that from you. 
No one can take away the salvation that you have in him. No one can take away that the Holy Spirit is given to you as a guarantee and a deposit and a manifestation of his life in and through you. No one can take away the fact that God is developing in you proven character. Nobody can take away the peace and patience and kindness and love and grace that is known in Jesus Christ. Everything could fall apart tomorrow. You could lose your job. Everything could go sideways. The wealth and material blessing that we've known in the United States could be gone. But nobody can take what Jesus has given you. And so he says, is, your, is, your, is what you're pursuing, is it eternal? Would you define wealth the same way Jesus does? In knowing him and being refined by him. He says also to get from him white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not exposed. You see, truly being clothed isn't about what we wear, although we should, right? Please don't come here naked. Um, but, but being righteous and, and ta- having our sin taken away from us and uh, the things that will be brought to light in front of Jesus at some point in time. Like everything that we've ever done will be brought to light. And it'll either be brought to light in a way that we're judged for it or in a way that it's put on Jesus and we don't have to talk about it. It's going to be exposed for what it is. And he says, Jesus is saying, I want to take away your shameful nakedness and I want to clothe you with who he is. Right? In Colossians, Paul tells us to take off the old man, who we are in Adam, and put on Christ, to be clothed in Christ, to have his goodness and his righteousness and his person, his mind, the way that he thinks and the way that he acts and the way that he speaks, that we want to put that on, that the old man, which is sinful and shameful and broken before God, that we get rid of that, that we take it off. It was actually killed with Christ on the cross. Why would you put on something that's dead? That's weird. Instead, live in Jesus. Don't put on the old self, but put on the new man who's in Jesus. The one who's been raised up to righteousness. He says, I want to close you with that so that your old broken ways, those shameful old broken ways aren't what you are anymore. He says, get ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. I already mentioned that Laodicea was known for producing an ointment that helped with eye issues at that point in time. And Jesus is saying, you might think your medical advancements are something, but you still can't see life for what it really is. You're still missing the point. And so he says, turn to him for life. Have your sin removed and your eyes open to reality. And he says, I want you to think and speak and behave in new ways as a response to his love. He says in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. Uh, Jesus says that that one one of the ways that he shows us love is to put his arm on us and say, you're wrong. What you're doing is wrong. And in the process of doing what's wrong, you're, you're neglecting who God is. You're harming yourself and you're harming other people. And so, because I love you, I'm going to tell you, that's wrong. You shouldn't be living that way. You shouldn't be dependent upon your own abilities. Uh, You you shouldn't be entering relationships in order to take instead of give. Uh, You you shouldn't put things in front of God. Like, he's primary, and, and there's no idolatry. 
and, and you want to represent him well and you organize your life around him. And then once you do that and you get your vertical relationship with God right, then I'm going to show you how uh, your horizontal relationships with people change. And that's him loving us. He rebukes us. He shows us what's wrong. He, he says, this is a path that leads to destruction. And discipline is then putting us on a path that leads to life. This is what fathers should do. If you have kids and you don't do this, you're, you're not doing what a father should do. You're not demonstrating love. To leave a child on a path that leads to brokenness and destruction and not step in and say, this is wrong. What you're doing is going to cause yourself and others harm. You're not putting God first. And, and because of that, you're, you're, you're on a path that's going to lead to destruction. You call it out for what it is as a father. And, and then you tell your children, I want to set you on a path that leads to righteousness and goodness. Right? We don't just call it what's wrong, but we also then have, as fathers, we have to have the answer for what is right. And Jesus in his love, he does this for us. And as we're dependent upon the spirit of God as fathers, he'll teach us to do this with our children as well. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. Uh, we learn in the first couple chapters of Romans that one of God's ultimate expressions of wrath is actually to leave us to our own devices. As a father, if you're passive and leaving your children to their own devices, that is not love. And so he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That, that word zealous, it means eager and earnest. Intense and sincere is the idea. That I'm going to intensely pursue Jesus and I'm going to mean it. I'm not just putting on a show. Like, if you guys like my pursuit of Jesus or not, it's not really about that. I want him to be satisfied in the relationship that I pursue with him. It's about my relationship with him. And, and, and I want you to see that there's goodness in knowing him, and, and I want to represent him well. But I am eager and sincere. I, I earnestly want him above all else. And as I do that, he's actually going to cause me to live with you in a different way. He's going to cause me to love you in ways I couldn't on my own. And so be zealous. Be intense and sincere. And that means that you'd have to actually assess your life. And you'd have to say, are the routines that I live on a daily basis, do they demonstrate that I am intense and sincere about knowing Jesus? Like, when I wake up in the morning, do I do things that demonstrate to myself and with an understanding that, that does it show that I want Jesus? Or do I just kind of go through the day? I've had different people share how they do this, you know. Uh, some people, they wake up in the morning, there's a journal right there, and then maybe they had a bad night of sleep or whatever it is, and immediately they just write down, God, I had dreams and I'm really concerned about this. And they just talk to God first thing they do. Or today, um, I've got this meeting and this meeting and this meeting. And God, this one with this guy is going to be hard. Every time I have to go from my department and work to this department and work, it's difficult. And so you jot down. God, I, I need patience. I need self-control. I, I want to be in conversation with you about how I'm going to handle this meeting. Maybe you spend a little bit of time in his word. And you get in the car, and I'm not saying you can't listen to secular music, but what are you filling your brain with? And so maybe you make some choices with the music that you listen to, and you say, I'm going to fill my mind, and, and, and what I think about, I'm going, to, I'm going to listen to music that honors God, so that when I get into the workplace, I'm already, I'm already, I'm already geared up. 
I'm already in, actively pursuing a relationship with Jesus. And you look at your day and you say, okay, well, and then and you look at your week and you go, you know, my work week typically looks like this and maybe there's a little bit of variance, but for the most part, it looks like this. And so I'm going to set up times in my week where I make a point to be in God's word and I make a point to be in fellowship with other believers so that we can sharpen each other and we can pursue Jesus together. And I'm going to, like, sports are neat, but if they put them on Sunday, I don't really think that's the best for me or my family. I probably, probably should put Jesus in front of sports. And so I'm going to be intense and sincere in pursuing Jesus. And then he says, repent. That means to change one's mind or think differently. And we do all of this in a response to his love. Jesus is offering us meaningful, powerful relationship. And in verse 20, he draws us out a little further. He says, see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. You see that the door to your heart is something that you have to open. Um, on the houses that they had, the ancient doors that they had, the handle was on the inside. There wasn't a handle on the outside. The handle was on the inside. That's where the latch was. And so there's an understanding that if you want this door to open, you have to open it. If you want deep and meaningful fellowship with Jesus, then you have to open the door. This isn't something that Jesus forces on us. Instead, he stands and he knocks and he offers truth and life and love to anyone who will seek that meaningful relationship with him. But we have to open the door. We have to let him in. And so he promises to us that if we'll do this, in verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to listen, anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so he says, if, if, if you'll let him in and, and you'll let him, let him eat with you, if you'll have this kind of close relationship... I don't know about you guys. When we have a family gathering and we, we get food on the table, we're spending time together, and there's, a night, there's, there's this understanding that there's a closeness. There's this, a sense of belonging. Like when I get together with my family for a family meal, I, I don't go there and feel like, well, I'm not supposed to be here. Like this is where I belong. These are the people that I know and that I love and that I cherish and that hold me close and I hold them close and, and we have this bond. And Jesus is saying, as, as awesome as that is, that kind of familial love, he has something greater for us. That we can actually be a part of his family, that we can sit around his table. But he also wants to come over to our house and he wants to sit with us. He wants this closeness. And essentially, he says, if you'll let me in your house, I'll let you rule in my kingdom. If you'll let me in your heart, I'll make you a co-heir with Christ. I will give you spiritual blessings that are far beyond even what you can comprehend. And this is hard to comprehend. Uh, this promise is kind of even difficult to imagine that the king of creation invite those who overcome to sit on his throne with him. 
That's what he says. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. That the spiritual blessings of life and, and, and everything that Jesus has, he's saying, I want to share it with you. Everything that he is, everything that he does, everything that he has, he wants to share it with us. And so what Jesus has done is he's, he invites us to dig deeper. He doesn't strong arm us to love him. That wouldn't be genuine love anyway. But what he does is he demonstrates his love and he defeats sin and death for us. And, and this is the proof of his love. And then he was raised from the dead to demonstrate that he's worthy of our worship, of our life. And returning the love that he's given to us. We reciprocate. We love because he first loved us. He's proven in one life after another that when we turn to him and open the door of our life to him, that he brings us the real eternal riches of life, peace, hope, joy, goodness, kindness, compassion, truth, steadfastness, endurance, proven character, and love. And it doesn't matter what happens on this earth. No one can take those things away from us. There's no question to whether Jesus, if Jesus is capable or reliable or worthy. He is. The question of living life in the fullest is not to whom we should turn, but whether or not we will. There's an inscription on a church in Germany, Lübeck Cathedral. And I think this is pretty appropriate for the Laodicean church. It says, you call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk not. You call me life and desire me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. And so what each of us has to answer is what will we do with the offer that Jesus has for us? Do you see him as all that you need? Do you? Or do you need more money? Do you need another possession? Do you need... Or is he all you need? And as believers, followers of Jesus Christ, you, you understand that you've made this decision. That you understand that God created you in love. That he is the originator of all creation. He made you and he has rightful dominion over you. And that's scary because you've sinned. And you've broken that dominion. You've rebelled against the king. 
And rightfully, we deserve condemnation. But because God loves us, because his love is who he is, and he can't help but act from it, he sends his son Jesus to go to the cross to take away the consequences of sin so that we don't have to pay them. So that instead of being clothed in the old man and the shamefulness that came from our sin, we're now clothed in Christ. And he was raised from the dead to prove that he's worthy and also to give us new life and then bestow upon us spiritual blessings that no one can take away. No amount of money could be better than it. No possession you could own is greater than it. It's all in Jesus. He gives it to us freely because he loves us. And still, we might keep the door of our heart closed. And so he says, will you open it? Will you desire fellowship with him? Over the things that we're trying to be tricked into thinking are where we can really find life. It's a question we have to ask ourselves as Christians. Wealthy American Christians who need nothing and could very easily fall into the trap that we have everything in our wealth and our possessions. Do we see Jesus as all we need? Would we be willing to give up some of those possessions, some of our wealth, as God gave up his possessions and his position and his wealth, his greatest thing that he could give, the life of his son, he gave it so that we could be saved. And if we're going to walk in the likeness of Jesus, are we willing to lay down our wealth and our possessions for the benefit of others? Or is greed too powerful? And so that's what Christ calls us to. There's also a message for those of you who don't know him yet this morning that he is knocking at the door of your heart and he wants to save you. And he's already done everything necessary to save you. He loves you. He cares about you. He knows every broken thing you've ever done and he went to the cross for it to make you whole again. Uh, he's not, he doesn't, you don't have to get cleaned up. He just wants to come in and eat with you. He'll clean things up along the way. Will you respond to him? Will you let him forgive you? Will you trust him and have new life? Let me pray. Father, this morning we're, we're in awe of you. We're in awe of your creative power, your holiness, your dominion, your authority. Your justice, your love. And we thank you, Father, that you sent your son Jesus, that in eternity past you knew that the best way to save the most of us was to give the life of your son, that any who trust in him would be freed from the consequences of sin and raised to newness of life. What a beautiful message. You, I would have never come up with that on my own, and neither would have anybody else, but in your infinite wisdom, that is your plan of salvation. We're thankful for it. We're thankful for your son, Jesus. We're thankful for his death on the cross. We're in awe of what you've done for us. I pray that we would keep our hearts open, seeking fellowship with you day in and day out, intense and sincere to know you. And then any any time you show us something that's out of line with that, that we would repent, we'd change our mind, and we'd get that thing out of the way. 
Father, I pray for those who have not made a commitment to trust in your son Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation, that the Spirit of God would move in them and awaken them and give them faith to trust you, and that they would share that decision with someone. We pray all these things and we worship you in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.